we have a difficult time figuring out whose voice to listen to in life. This isn't just true for COVID-19 and all the other things that are going on. This is just life in general is that the voices that we have a tendency to listen to so often have other agenda, other need, other focus. And so it's very difficult in particular for the people of Christ to block things out to hear the one voice that we are intended to listen to. But perhaps our greatest enemy voice that we hear is the one that lives within us. It's the one that we were born with. It's the one that we've been practicing for as many years as we've been on this earth. We've been hearing this voice over and over and over again. The voice that I hear every time I wake up and going through these circumstances and situations is the one that keeps walking me off of cliffs. So it's difficult sometimes to understand who am I supposed to be listening to? I know the scripture says the voice of the Lord, but we go, how do I discern that? Where do I find that? This is what is sort of the subtext of what we're talking about with the Corinthian church as Paul has written this, this follow-up letter to them, and we've been studying it since last year. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to stop hear the, hearing the voice that they are attuned to hearing. Stop obeying the, the voices of those around him that are marching them off the cliff. And he's had some success. They're starting to repent of listening to that voice. The Lord, and Paul is saying, listen to the voice of the Lord. He will always lead you to greener pastures. He will always lead you beside still waters. And he's encouraging, instructing them. And they're starting to turn. They're starting to find that he's telling them the truth. But there's still some voices going on in Corinth that are causing trouble. And this is where we're going in the letter. As we get to chapter 10, Paul's tone is changing drastically. He was very encouraged and being very encouraging for the first nine chapters. He's, he's rekindling a relationship with people that there was tension with. If you've been through that before, you know, after you've gotten through that, some of those first few conversations are just really energetic. There's a lot of adrenaline. You feel like, man, I can't believe we're here. We're actually embracing again. We're, we're communicating again. All of that is back. And this is what Paul felt like. And you see that a lot in those first nine chapters. But he's about to flip the page and sound very, very different. So much so that a lot of commentators have wondered in the past, this has since been kind of debunked and thought through a little bit better, but they wondered if whether or not Second Corinthians was really two letters, you know, first, uh, the first nine chapters were written while Paul was on a high and he was like, okay, things are good. We're back. And then, and then he got someone come up and said, Hey, but Paul, this he's like, um, I still got a few more pages. I think I can correct that. And then he starts getting nasty and harsh and direct and all these kinds of things. Like he's dealing with the same people with a different tone. Some have speculated Paul had a sleepless night before he started chapter 10. Had something bad, his pizza was bad, I don't know. They blame him for being moody or something like that. But the reality is, is you can poke holes through all those theories just by staying in the text and understanding the things that Paul has already said and the things that he's saying in chapter 10 and beyond. And you see that he's covering the same principles, but he's focusing on two different audiences. These are going to be the chapters 10 through 13 are going to be some of the most emotionally intense words that Paul has ever penned. And yet they are giving us the clearest picture, perhaps, into Paul's heart and his mind, what makes him tick, what he cares about, what he's concerned about. We're going to see that play out in these last few chapters. Famously, he penned in 
chapter 12, verse 7, that God had given him a thorn in the flesh. And he sets it up for us saying, because I was an apostle of Christ, called by Jesus uniquely and given special revelation, and I was going to serve a very important part of the, the history of the church and, and all those things that, that he saw it as the Lord sent something to me that I would have to endure. Most people believe it was something in his physical body that I would have to endure to keep me humble so that all these revelations and all these opportunities and things wouldn't go to my head. Paul was very wise because he was someone of, of accomplishment and prestige and, and all of those things back in his former life before coming to Christ. And so he equates that the Lord gave him this challenge to endure, even though he asked him for its removal three different times. God said, no, nope, not yet. Paul equates that that is in his life to humble him and to serve a greater purpose. And he gives us that purpose just a couple verses later in chapter 12. And this is, in a sense, the, the, um, the crux or the major theme of the entire letter in verse 9 that he says, God's strength is made perfect in my weakness. So Paul is equating that I'm going through these things in order to display or demonstrate the strength of God in my life. And he goes on to say, because of that, I will continue to boast in my weaknesses because those are the things that God shows up the brightest in. So it is, it is similar in Paul's optimism. It's similar in his instruction, but he's going to get snarky in places. He's going to get that, that we're supposed to call this literary irony, some of the things he's going to say in particular in our short little passage together. But it's really a close cousin to sarcasm, and I that speaks my spiritual gift language. So I see a lot of sarcasm in what Paul's saying here, and you're going to see it too because I'm going to overemphasize it. But it's a very helpful tool in what Paul is wanting to do to get a certain point across. If we're not careful, though, we'll think that he is being mean to people that probably don't deserve it. Hey, Paul, I thought these people were on board with you. Keep in mind that what, who he's been talking to in the first nine chapters are the repentant majority of people that have said, yep, you're right. We're on board, Paul. What can we do? How do we make this right? Where do we go next? Now he's starting to talk to an unrepentant minority and he's going to zero in on them pretty harshly. And before we pick on Paul for a harsh tone, we have to remember that Jesus did the same thing. To the lost, to the broken, to the suffering, Jesus was, was nothing but compassionate, patient, forgiving, reaching down, healing, doing all those things. And for the few that were cantankerous, the few that were challenging Jesus' authority, that were uh, offering to or claiming they spoke for his father, and they were leading people right off the cliff, he dealt with them. He went to them harsh, he dressed them down, and he put them in their place. So there's a time and place for these things as Jesus has demonstrated and Paul is following suit. As we get into this um, passage, what we're going to see is that Paul's real attack is coming into focus. That the real reason why these things were being stirred up is starting to present themselves when a leader can't do anything right. They've got them coming or going. Doesn't matter what happens. He's caught between this rock and a hard place because they said, Paul, when you're with us, you don't speak uh, authoritatively or you're no big shot like you are in your letters. When you're with us, you're this kind of meek and gentle kind of chill guy and everything. And you were a little bit behind the scenes and stuff. But man, once you get away a few cities, you start writing and condemning us from afar. 
You're a big shot from away, but when you're face to face, you're not so impressive. These were some of the charges that, that Paul had to face. And then, so almost whatever move he made next, he was kind of going to be. So if he said, okay, I'm going to overreact and I'm going to be a big shot when I'm with him. I'm going to write gentle love notes when I'm away. They would have accused him of something else. He wasn't willing to, he didn't have his own credentials to tout in, in Christ because all of his former life, as we're going to see as we get into these chapters, meant nothing to him and they didn't serve the purpose of Christ anymore. So he abandons them and chucks them. But all the, the people that he refers to, the, the little whispers and the stirrers and the false leaders that are there, he refers to them as super apostles. Again, the gift of sarcasm he has. Oh, all of you big, lofty, super apostles, you've got it all figured out. The things that he used to be about were the things they would have been impressed by. But he says those things don't advance the cause of Christ. So he doesn't come and tout his own credentials like they were used to doing. In in person, he's not impressive enough. He's already had the painful visit that we referenced early in the letter. If you recall, we, we gave it the metaphor. It was like being laughed out of the gym at the prom because your date wasn't pretty enough and your clothes weren't cool enough and everything, that Paul essentially got driven out because of his lack of being impressive. And Paul is going to say something in our text this morning where he's going to subtly admit, yeah, in the flesh, these things sting. I am a person. I am a man. I, I walk in these, with these fleshly feet. I get blisters like you. I get hungry when it's dinner time. I wonder if I'm going to be able to earn my living with my tent making, all these kinds of things. He goes, even though we walk in the flesh, we don't. And then we'll finish that. So Paul is admitting these things aren't just bouncing off him like they don't hurt. And it's also clear that these intruders, as they're referred to, or interlopers, we might say, we're actually gunning for Paul's authority and would use any tactic to take him out. These super apostles, these high and mighty were Judaizers who were saying, we, we believe that Jesus is Messiah. We're with Paul on that. We're glad to see what's happening with the church here and everything, but we're not so quick to discard the Mosaic law. We believe that there's rich heritage in our traditions. We believe that there's a lot of good that can be done with those things. And so we don't want to so quickly abandon the law that Moses gave us. But we're not saying we don't need grace and Jesus and all that. Paul was trying to help people to see you can't have both. Anytime our works are put on the scale, that's what I'm trying to illustrate here poorly. Anytime our works are put on the scale compared to God's grace, there's no comparison. Paul is saying to them, by mingling the grace of Jesus and the fact that he did all the work perfectly for us, if you try to bring your own works and put them on the scale, they're not even going to budge the scale. In, in, in other words, he says the super apostles are preaching a false Jesus and therefore a false gospel. And so their susceptibility, the Corinthian church, their susceptibility to this campaign of these super apostles is being laid squarely on the condition of the Corinthians' hearts. We've been talking a lot this week about whether or not people have underlying conditions and whether or not that makes them more susceptible to, con- to uh, catch what's going around. It's interesting here that what Paul is saying in a sense is your heart's condition was so weak and so ready that the super apostles could come in and say what they've said and you go, sounds good. Because you haven't been strengthened against it. Your immune system hasn't been built up in order to combat this kind of wickedness. 
Their minds were shaped by the pagan culture, which loved rhetoric and flashiness and showing off, boasting about their own accomplishments, their visible credentials. It was part of the church culture. We expect our leaders leaders to be braggadocious. We expect them to flaunt their skills and all that stuff because then that means that we're in good standing. And they also wanted to see their leaders have visible financial success. It's like if their car was the shiniest in the church parking lot, then it's like we've got a good leader on our hands. How twisted and warped is that? Since then, the Bible's been taught to us and made clear that those aren't the markings of God's blessings in people's lives, but instead are often a a temptation and a drawing away of what humble leadership should look like. And so their standards were all over the place and were very much mixed by, uh, influenced by a pagan culture that they lived and claimed to be ministering in. So this is what gets us into our text. This is what gets us into where Paul is going with setting up the rest of the letter. He's giving us a little microcosm in six verses of where the rest of this letter is going to go. Why does this matter? I always try to bring it up to speed for us just a little bit. Why do we care? Well, because it's the Bible, yes. Well, because we're in church, yes. But why do we care really about what Paul said so many centuries ago? I think it's because it teaches us about proper church leadership in the view or in the relationship or the instruction of what Paul's apostleship meant to the Corinthian church. I believe it also confronts the evils that creep in the church, evidenced by boasting or success formulas, triumphalism, all of these things that say, you know what, we're right. And so because we're right, we're going to do everything that feeds our ego and we're going to just be above it all. More subtly, perhaps, this idea of giving to get back, that brand of quote-unquote faith, if I put the quarter in the machine, I should get the candy bar at the bottom, as though God owes us something. Some of that's going to unfold as we go through these chapters. Paul is going to model for us Christian maturity through his own uh, carrying out of sacrificial leadership. He's going to continue to show patience, but he's also going to mingle that with boldness. As we said before, there's a time and place with everything, for everything. And often the difference in the audience or the condition of the person that you're working with changes how you have to go towards them or approach them. So Paul's going to demonstrate boldness for us. But also I think that this passage in particular and ones that will follow challenges the church to take responsibility for the, the types of people that we want to follow, the styles of leadership that we want to emulate or adhere to as well as, and this is the tough part, as well as you and I carrying the collective weight of confronting sin in the body of Christ. Even before we close our time today, you'll see that Paul was encouraging the Corinthians to help carry this load with him. So here's our key statement. This is sort of the boil down statement that if you, you, if you just walk away with this, I feel like you do well to, to say, okay, where is my faith going from this standpoint? This statement is this, the spirit's strategies are totally different from ours. Now, we might say, duh, of course they are. But again, if we go back to what voice do we hear? What voice do we listen to? I'm admitting before you, as I'm sure many of you will as well, that the plans and the strategies that immediately come to mind for me are not the ones that are born of God. That it often takes me time, it takes me failure, it takes those things to realize God had a different plan all along and I just wasn't willing to listen. 
This is the message that Paul is trying to get across to the Corinthian believers. Follow the voice of the Spirit and he won't walk you off the edge of the cliff. Continue to follow these dudes' voices and they're just marching you towards destruction. The Spirit's strategies are totally different from ours. So let's get into our text in just the little bit of time that we have. Oh, I'm halfway through the time. We got lots of time. (laughs) Buckle up. Okay, Uh, verse 1. I, Paul, I myself, not Paul the apostle, not giant authority, not, not scary guy or anything like that. Paul, the guy you know, me. I entreat you, I beg you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. We're going to stop there for a second because this is such a brilliant insertion of a phrase that others would seek to use against him. This meek and gentle guy, how can you follow him? Why is he so attractive to us? Why should we listen to what he's saying? And he's saying, the meekness and gentleness that I'm displaying to you, even as I write this and how I've demonstrated in the past, just copying Jesus. Could you imagine, I I don't have any reason to think that this is going on, but could you imagine if these super apostles were tasked with reading Paul's letter to the church? And they're sitting there going, okay, so he says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and and gentleness of, of Christ. It's that kind of sense of, we'd never admit it out loud, but he's getting us. He's, he's nailing us because we have said that meekness and gentleness is, is hindering our mission and it's keeping us away from our own accolades and that sort of thing. So Paul's just saying, let's not forget who we're supposed to be emulating here. This is tongue-in-cheek, sarcasm. We'll tame it down and call it literary irony. He says, I, who am humble when face-to-face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away, as some have asserted, I beg of you that when I'm present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. I beg of you. I entreat you. I beseech you. Your brother in Christ, I'm coming to you. Don't make the same mistake you earlier made. Instead, stay on the path that you're on. Don't fall back into the group that I'm going to have to show up and do business with. Don't be counted in that company. I'm just asking you now, I'm imploring you, don't, once you're done reading this letter, move on and say, well, we had a good run, but these guys are really cool. Don't fall back into that. He's demonstrating here the meekness and gentleness of Christ, a brother who's calling to them to help them avoid destruction. Jesus even says in Matthew eleven twenty nine, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lonely, lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. There's our evidence. That's who Paul's copying. That's who's living through him, giving him the ability, the power to respond in these ways. Where I think if you and I were honest, it's like, how does he keep taking it on the chin? How does the great apostle Paul, even if he just remembers who he was before he came to Christ, he was kind of a mighty dude. How does he keep taking it on the chin? Because the one who lives in me is greater than the one that they're listening to. And the one who lives in me is the King of kings and Lord of lords who descended from his throne to walk in humility and sacrifice his life for us. So Paul would call us right out of the gate, I think, as we come to verse 3, to reject worldly warfare. Let's read verse 3 and 4 together. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, 
Paul is saying, reject conventional warfare. Don't fall into the trap that the battle that you're fighting is the one that you can see. This is what's going on in the tug of war of the church leadership going on in Corinth is they want to be impressive in the here and now. Paul is saying, I'm not satisfied with us just being good in the here and now. There's a bigger prize to be had. And he's definitely going to explain that in chapters to come. So he says, don't get caught up in the fact that we're winning or trying to fight this battle of the flesh. Yeah, we got to live in it. We got to work in it. We've got to feed it. We've got to take care of ourselves in it and everything. I'm not denying that we have aspects of the flesh that were our reality, but it's not where we need to stay. That's what would be conventional warfare. Conventional warfare is the, the stuff that we have experience in. It's the stuff that we can see. It's the stuff that affects us. He wants to shift their view to a different plane. In Romans 8, 9, Paul called the flesh the sin nature. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. There's that juxtapositioning that if you're in the spirit, you deny that definition of the word flesh. It's not just your skin and your bones. It's that nature that you were born with that we all inherited from Adam. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So we know that the flesh, biblically speaking, is referred to as the sin nature. It's also referred to as our physical being. The super apostles were using the the word flesh to describe Paul's substandard spirituality. He's not really holding up to our methods, our standards of what we think an apostle should look like. So he's just living in the flesh, which is completely ironic. But how does Paul mean when he's talking about the flesh? Of course, he means the physical. We walk in it. But he's also having us look towards this thing that theology calls eschatology. That is that view of things to come. What is taking place for the individual and the church as the Lord unfolds his eternal plan? What is coming? Well, the theologians would say, based on all that we understand from Scripture and putting all of these pieces together in a system, we have an already and a not yet. I have some benefits of the kingdom in the here and now. I have acquittal before God, even though my sins are heavy and great, I stand before him. And he says, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, I I pronounce you guiltless. We have acquittal before God. We have eternal life that we know that we're already walking in. Even though our bodies, we, we just heard that amazing song, Though You Slay Me, which is not right that Elijah was born with that voice. It's just not fair. Uh, we, we hear that song, Though You Slay Me. Even though that happens, my life isn't over because I trust I have hope in you. We have that benefit in the already. We've been given the Holy Spirit to move inside of us, to illuminate truth, to convict us of sin, to, to, to seal us before, uh, uh, with, the, with the Lord and to give us fellowship with one another. We have the benefit now of the Holy Spirit. We have the forgiveness of our sins every moment that we walk. We have fellowship with one another. You and I are friends, brothers and sisters in Christ in certain ways that wouldn't be logical for us to be related that way. We have the assurance and the promise of our salvation that I can't remove myself from the Father's grip, as the scripture says. So you and I have an already. We have a now when it comes to the kingdom. That is a fun part to dwell on. That's an amazing part to think about and just be like, wow, we've got all of those great things. And it should be. That should fuel and and feed our praise. 
But there's also a not yet that comes with the kingdom that gets even better. We're going to have our, the, the, the reality of death is going to be destroyed. We won't have to pass through the grave in order to be with the Lord anymore. That'll be all behind us. The power of sin won't pull us down like a gravitational strength on our lives. We're going to have these weird resurrected bodies. I still can't make sense from the scriptures what we're going to have. You tell me how Jesus was hungry and yet could walk through a wall. I don't get it. Let that play with your mind a little bit. We're going to have a new heaven and a new earth, one that is not uh, infected by diseases and cause for concern and panic and all those kinds of things. We're going to have a free worship of God where we are, are in his presence and lifting up his, his name and, and singing to him and not worrying about, well, I got to fix this problem and then this person doesn't like me and I don't have enough money to pay my, we're, we're going to be free to worship the glory of God because we're released from all of those burdens. We're going to experience perfect love with one another. We're going to see it face to face with our Lord. We're going to be completely holy, set apart, sinless and perfect which will cause us to have perfect relationships with one another. That's the not yet. That's the one that's coming. And so what was going on with the quote unquote super apostles is they wanted to emphasize the things that were fun to think about, the things that which we could just camp on and say, well, we're promised this, this and this. And the more we focus on that, the less we have to worry about the other side of the equation, the more difficult parts of our calling in Jesus Christ. And so we have to be careful that we don't wade into the same waters. We may not walk around with our credentials on our sleeve. We may not go around outwardly bragging about all the things we can accomplish or demanding that people follow our leadership or things. But we certainly can be guilty of just thinking about the positive, fun parts of all the promises that come to us in the kingdom. Instead of balancing that out, learning to balance that out with a spirit of meekness, which is seen in service or obedience or living a humble life that is is full of self-denial. These are all the things that Paul wanted to demonstrate because he knew if they went down that path, what those other leaders are doing, that they were robbing themselves of the true calling of their existence as believers. And so Paul wants to wage war against that. He doesn't have time to be politically correct. He doesn't have time to be kind and polite and doesn't, I don't want to step on any toes. They have a good thing going there. It's a good organization and all that stuff. He cares about the spiritual condition of the church in a battlefield that they can't see. That is the nature of the conflict that Paul is trying to address. And that is the spiritual nature. He even goes on to address this with the church in Ephesus in Ephesians six twelve. He reminds them, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What a great reminder that we have when all of life is on display in front of us, all that we can see, all the, the fear that we experience and all of the panic that we see around us, all of those things, to have someone just come in and gently remind us, you live in a kingdom that you can't see. It's kind of like that reminder. Oh, what happens here and now isn't the be all end all. It's important. We got to pay attention to it. We got to conduct ourselves wisely in it, but it's not the end of it all. So Paul would say to reject 
worldly warfare. Don't even engage in that battlefield. And so if you're going to engage in spiritual warfare, you're going to need spiritual weaponry, which is what he addresses in verses 4 and 5. So let's go back to this. He says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. You see the inference there? That the weapons of the flesh won't work? He says, we're not using those. Instead, we're using ones that actually work. We're using divine power to destroy, there's a few enemies in this, destroy strongholds, destroy arguments, and destroy every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge or what we could say, what blocks the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Strongholds is not necessarily a phrase that we use a lot of, but if you picture sort of, I always picture medieval battles when I'm thinking about these kinds of terms and stuff, and you can picture an outer wall that is built high and it's a fortressy kind of thing. And so the goal is to slow down. I don't know much about warfare and tactics and stuff, but if you slow down the enemy at that wall, you get a greater chance to reduce their numbers and everything, but that isn't their final stand. They know that there's some expectation that the wall will be breached. A stronghold can often be kind of like a high tower, something you can fight from a high position. But what it, de- what it develops in the lives of the city or the kingdom is whatever happens at the wall isn't our last stand. We've got some trust that we still got a backup plan, a thing we can retreat to. The wisdom of Proverbs in 21.22 says this, A wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the stronghold in which they trust. Paul is saying the divine weapons that we use don't just get over the wall. We start to get into the head of people that think, oh, we can survive this because we've got a backup plan. No, you don't. When you start breaking the trust of the enemy, all of a sudden fear creeps in, retreat starts showing up, all these kinds of things. That's when you know you've got them. So Paul isn't just saying we're getting over the wall. He says we're going for the stronghold, the tower. It defeats their arguments. And you go, okay, now we're getting somewhere because I love winning a good debate. But Paul is getting somewhere a little bit deeper than debate. He's getting a little bit deeper than just convincing someone of a fact and changing their opinion on the truth of a thing and then settling with that and just saying, okay, good, I won the argument. Once again, not only am I right, but God has been vindicated. And this poor loser is over there crying in the corner because I destroyed all their arguments. He's talking about something that is a little bit more indicative of, of what happens with mankind, that when we buy onto, bite onto an era, when we start to move in that direction, it progressively and downward, it's downward spirals. And it gets worse and worse. And so it starts to create this kind of defense of not only do I not believe in our conversation, the context of our conversation, not only do I not believe God exists, but now I have to develop layers of understanding that prove to myself to convinces me why he doesn't exist. And so it starts to spiral down and get deeper and deeper and deeper. And Paul says, I've got weapons that will destroy that. It's demonstrated, this progression is demonstrated as he writes in Romans one twenty one. He says, for although they knew God on, on, on the surface level, they intellectually knew he was, that he existed. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. The progression was, we don't want to, we don't want to answer to him, so we're not going to honor him. Certainly not going to be thankful that he's alive because he's intruding in my space. So I'm progressing away from him. They became 
futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul is saying our weapons will chase that downward spiral and meet them at the end. This is more than just winning debates. It's more than us just walking away saying we won the argument. God cares about the heart of the debater. God cares about what happens when the stronghold of that of that person who's rejecting the glory of God, all of a sudden their core is shaken. Will the people of God be compassionate enough to show who Jesus is to even that person? Or do we just continue to see them as an enemy? And once we put them in their place, it's like a boxing match. We've knocked them out on the floor and we can just walk away and say, I did my job. Far too many of us in the church are happy to just win the debate and not win the heart. Paul says this will destroy lofty opinions. These are these arrogant claims, these thoughts and acts that, that just get in the way. They, they prevent the person from knowing who God is. Why? Because it's all about them. It's interesting. If you think about most of the, I don't know what it's like always on the streets that you live in and stuff, but for the most part, uh, atheism carries a heavy baggage of arrogance. A great characteristic of your, 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 your poster child atheism is, is really demonstrated by arrogance. Now, keep in mind, I'm not saying that Christians can't be arrogant because we certainly can be. But a lot of what comes in place with atheism or humanism is arrogance. But think about how intellectually consistent that is. It really is. If there's nobody I need to answer to more than me, why wouldn't I think the most of myself? What would be in me that care about you more than me? I've just said, I've got no one else I have to answer to. And so it's the same uh, charge that people level against God. Well, that seems pretty arrogant that he would demand worship. If there's no one higher than him, it would be idolatrous to want to share that worship with somebody else. If it's true, it needs to be carried out that way. See, Paul is dealing with this in the context of how Jews relate to Greeks a little bit. And they're all saying, this is our answer. These are our strategies. These are our traditions, all that kind of stuff. And Paul is saying the gospel is the only truth that is bringing these two groups together. That Jews are serving Greeks and Greeks are serving Jews and they're finding their identity in Jesus Christ. And it's destroying all of these arguments. It's destroying these strongholds because in Christ, the meek and gentle savior, none of those things matter. And they're certainly not getting the job done. D.A. Carson, in a, in a commentary on 2 Corinthians, says this. This verse, or we could say these verses, is so desperately serious and deeply tied into the fountainhead of sin in our lives. Here's where it gets personal. We cannot know God from a position of arrogance and cynicism, for not only are such attitudes fundamentally antithetical to our creaturely dependence, you and I were created, to act as though we're independent from the one who made us is just the recipe for disaster. There's no way of knowing him that way. They are also foundationally opposed to the only knowledge of God to poor sinners that would be in the face or in the person of Jesus Christ. They can't argue with the fact that Paul is getting results. That as their ego and their, their human accolades and all those things are failing them, Paul is saying, if you deny yourself, you find him. And in finding him, you find others. So Paul says we need to use spiritual weapons for a spiritual battle. If we go back to Ephesians 6 real briefly as we start to wind this down, 
he continues a list for us. And that list is like a, an ammunition list or a, the weapons in his holster or something like that. What is it that Paul is recommending we use? Verse 13, he says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on, here's your weapons list, the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying, tell me that's not a weapon. At all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Paul is saying that our weaponry that we often drag in, we're dragging onto the wrong battlefield, we're grabbing the wrong weapons, and we're trying to figure out why isn't this working? Why aren't more people coming to Christ? Why am I not finding favor with the people around me? That's because we are fighting the wrong battle with the wrong weapons. Here's what he says at the close of our passage, verse 6. This is his invitation, his plea for them to come along. He says, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Remember what he said in the first couple of verses where he says, I'm coming and I'll demonstrate the boldness that everyone's saying I don't have. I will demonstrate it. I just don't want to de- demonstrate it towards you. It's almost like Paul is picturing what he wants to have happen. He's going to come into the church. They're all going to hug and be like, I can't believe I've seen, you know, I haven't seen you in years and oh, you haven't aged today and all this kind of stuff. They're all going to get together and have a good time. And, and then at some point he, it's almost like he wants the church to kind of just step aside and goes, those are the guys you're looking for right over there. Those are the ones that you said you needed to deal with. We're not protecting them. We're singling them out because it's time to deal with them. You don't have any resistance or opposition from us, Paul. Now, clearly, it would be far better if by the time he arrived, they had already dealt with it. But he's not even necessarily saying that. He says, be ready for when I come so that we can punish disobedience together. Don't be guilty of the same thing. Don't close the letter of this, the book of this letter and just be like, wow, okay, it was really good to hear from him again. And then get drawn into the flashiness of those that were the super apostles and be led astray. Be ready to deal with this through your own obedience. A lot of what we're going to talk about has to do with um, uh, dealing with these issues. It also comes into play for us to, to talk about restoration and, and rebuilding the, the life of the church and everything. But the difficult call that we have before us is that in a, in a, in a culture of gathering, it's very easy for us to get to a point where we see things like a club or like it's, it's here for our purposes, our entertainment, our enjoyment. And the difficult side of these gatherings, the difficult side of the, the, uh, the, the called out assembly that is the ecclesia or the church, the difficult side of that is that uh, we often have to do business with sin and error. And there's a lot of ways to do that. There's a lot of ways that churches have blown it with doing that. And there's a lot of churches that turn a blind eye to it. 
And all I'm saying is that as we study Paul's instruction together, let us be prayerful about, Lord, how do we restore the sinner to fellowship? How, we, how do we not think highly, more highly of ourselves and our own opinion of what's right or wrong so that we're always looking down our nose? But help us not to be negligent in the fact that we have to deal with disobedience, that we have to move into those uncomfortable territories, hopefully to restore the sinner. But if they refuse, if they are that unrepentant minority... How do we protect the rest of the church from that cancer? Those are difficult waters to wade in. And certainly none of those waters do we have all the answers, but it is something that the Holy Spirit will guide us in. Our call today is to not latch on to the weapons of our flesh. As I wake up every single day, I want to doubt the first verse, a voice I hear, because it's probably the one I've been practicing for 40 years. I don't want to tell you how old I am. Usually when people see as many kids as I have, they go, like, ah, you look too young to have all of those kids. I'm like, yeah, keep thinking that. It's not true. We want to block out that voice that has been leading us astray and then trust the, the voice of the Lord and say, Lord, give me the faith. Give me the faith to block out one, turn the volume knob, knob up on the other and lead me beside those still waters. Lead me to those places of restoration and fellowship with you. Would you please stand and let's close our time in prayer. God, I want to thank you, Lord, for bringing us together. I thank you, Lord, for the blessings that we've been given. And and Lord, regardless of what happens with our collective gathering and for how long that takes, I don't know, Lord, but we want to move forward in faith. We want to step into a darkness as a bright light. And Lord, I just pray that you would uh, help us to make these times about your kingdom. Help us to make these times about the people that you have hearts for, the people that are broken, lost, discouraged, scared. Ultimately, Lord, help us to not make this about us. But Lord, may we continue to grow as we hear your voice. May we continue to to find comfort and peace as we trust in what you're doing. Thank you, Lord, for being the almighty. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.